0: Talking books on News 106 to 108. If you ask somebody whether they think things are, are getting better, chances are they'll say no. But on the other hand, if you look at the grand sweep of history, actually things have, have improved enormously. So it's a difficult one to, to balance. So some of these technological changes are generating quite serious. Questions about what kinds of work and jobs we're going to have and where those jobs are going to be that we, we really haven't addressed as yet. But, you know, if one looks, as I say, if one looks back at history, we see, you know, really dramatic improvements on an almost daily basis in terms of things like health, education, incomes are sort of at least not falling and uh, in many places still continuing to rise. So I think there are lots of reasons to be optimistic about the future, but I don't think it'll happen without us thinking about it. You know, there are certain collective issues that we can't leave to the market and we have to think about ourselves.
1: Does marriage make us happy or do happy people choose to be happy? So asks economist Paul Anand in his new book, Happiness Explained, what human flourishing is and what we can do to promote it. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to meet with two thought-provoking writers, one a novelist, the other an economist, writers of great integrity, wit and perspective. Paul Anand talks me through the latest global research on human wellbeing. And Jenny Hartley pieces together the selected letters of Charles Dickens, published by Oxford University Press. This is a show about friendship, communication and social equality. But first, marriage, life satisfaction and all the juicy stats. In Happiness Explained, Paul Anand writes, the most frequently cited triggers of divorce include communication problems, basic unhappiness, incompatibility, emotional abuse, financial problems and sexual problems. Moreover, being in a low-quality marriage is detrimental to various psychological aspects of life quality. Paul goes on to argue, overall those who divorce and remain unmarried have greater levels of life satisfaction, self-esteem and overall health compared with those who are unhappily married. Husband extroversion, for example, has been shown to be a positive factor for both partners' experiences, while own and partner neuroticism is also associated negatively with the happiness of both partners. So what are the key drivers of human flourishing? How prevalent is emotional exhaustion and burnout in today's society? And in the long run, is happiness more about community, personality, decent work and fairness, and less about all the money? Money, money.
0: Hello, yes, my name's uh, Paul Nant. I'm a professor at the Open University in the UK. I also do some health research uh, uh, in Oxford as well. And over the past sort of 10 to 15 years, I've been working on a new approach to welfare economics that highlights the kinds of benefits and gains that we're supposed to be getting out of the economic system in human terms.
1: I might throw you a big wide open question to begin with. What does economics have to say about happiness and what can it reveal?
0: Well, it's a a very good question. So for a long time, uh, economists have have said that people, well, they used a a sort of a technical term called utility, but it just meant sort of, you know, general happiness, well-being, quality of life, whatever you want. And for a long time, that's actually been quite central to economic analysis, thinking and and theory. But somehow a little bit has got lost in translation because when it comes to actually doing economic analysis, all of a sudden there's this kind of instant switch to, to money and income and wealth. And it's not that, of course, these things aren't terribly important. Of course, they're very important, but they're kind of indirect measures of happiness and well-being. And, you know, over the past sort of 10, 20 years, economists have started to look at well-being in a, in a much more direct way. I'm not entirely sure why. Uh, I suppose it's got something to do with the sort of new availability of data that there is out there.
1: Now, you're arguing that national income is at best only a narrow indicator of progress. So what are the drivers of well-being? And if we are moving beyond, as you say, the GDP, what is actually making people happy? And how are we understanding it all?
0: Well, obviously, that's the that's sort of key question. Uh, for, for a long time, when, when you say the word happiness, psychologists have focused on emotional states. And of course, emotional states are are, are really important. But as soon as you start talking in those terms, then people, other people, other groups, philosophers, for example, say, well, you know, what about the kinds of judgments and rational judgments that people have? Social scientists in general are saying, well, what about issues like equity and fairness and inequalities and, and poverty? What about these external things? So I think Actually, we're we're sort of moving to a situation where you know the, the sort of, in a way, the the kind of academic, specialised understandings of happiness are perhaps moving closer to what what everyone, what sort of lay people would think of as happiness in their lives, and and it covers a wide range of things, ranging from the kinds of, you know, doing things that you think give you pleasure or you think are fulfilling, through to seeking certain kinds of experiences right up to you know being sure that you've got the kinds of opportunities to do things that you have reason to to value and they may be things to do with you know home life partners families increasingly for a lot of people they're things to do with work
1: could it be argued though that happiness is related to personality traits and within all of that your
0: life goals Well, yes. I mean, personality traits are are an important issue and there are studies that say that genetics counts for some 50% of people's kind of expressed happiness, but that still leaves the other half. So, you know, even if personality explains a significant proportion of how happy we feel, there's still a lot that we can do by looking at the kinds of things that we do the kinds of societies and social structures that we put in place and the kinds of policies that, that governments pursue. So, so there is a personality component, but there's a lot more to it than that as well.
1: But you could look at education, you could look at job opportunities, you could look at ideas related to gender equality. There's so many variables within it all. And then on a Monday night, I could ring a mate and then. I would get one answer on happiness and then on a Friday night, a completely different one. So it's I know you write somewhere that we all have our own personal natural level of happiness. So there is a kind of a framework within every given person on how happy they're going to be inbuilt, so to speak.
0: That's true, and there's a lot of there's a lot of differences between people. So people have their own personal conceptions of happiness and well-being. And actually, there are some people who argue, and I think this is a, a reasonable point, that in some cases, you know, you don't know <laughs> entirely what's going to be best for your well-being, and that happiness can be something that's sometimes best uh, approached somewhat obliquely. There are certainly lots of different things but I I think we've also got to recognise that there are some sort of underlying almost universal things so one thing I'd point to is is what I call the FACE principle so fairness, autonomy, community and engagement and if you look at all the evidence and not just in adults but in very young children and in people as they get close to the end of life you see that these four things crop up time and time again
1: Now some of the stuff you write about in relation to cohabitating couples in marriage I found rather surprising some not very consoling at all you write cohabiting raises the probability of being in the middle happiness group while marrying at a later age is associated with being in the lower marital happiness group furthermore it has been found that husbands doing a greater proportion of housework or reporting equal decision making were more likely to being in the high marital happiness group as were those who reported greater beliefs in lifelong marriage or religion can you talk me through all of that? Because I would have imagined that as you get into your 40s and 50s, you'd be way looser and way more flexible and way more realistic with your expectations on relationship and marriage. So if you're going into your second marriage, that maybe your eyes are wider open and a bit more realistic.
0: That might be true. I think some of these things are just talking about sort of general averages. I'm talking there about some of the psychological evidence, and it doesn't always take into account, you know, full long-term histories that people have. Having said that, you know, it may be that there is a certain sort of novelty and excitement in doing things for the first time. That certainly is the case across a wide range of activities, and getting married, having a lifelong partner would be an example of that, doesn't mean to say that, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't get married later on in life, you shouldn't get married again, if, if that's what you want to do. And it might be the right thing to do, of course. There are one or two strange findings. Uh, so, for example, if you ask parents whether they're satisfied with life or not, a number of studies find that they're just marginally less satisfied than other people. But then if you ask them whether they're fulfilled, turns out they're slightly more fulfilled than others so there are swings and roundabouts with some of these things.
1: Yeah that read Um, to me very much a contradiction but you could look at fulfilment and satisfied and they're very different things in different ways. One of the areas though I did find quite revealing was on marital dissatisfaction and you say somewhere that you know if you're in a very bad relationship well undoubtedly your stress levels will be very aggravated but you look at overall health and well-being that it is almost catastrophic for you It seems that staying in a bad relationship is very bad for the health.
0: I think that's what the evidence says. I'm not not making any judgments myself, of course, but that seems to be the case. So, you know, if you're in a a relationship that really isn't working for both parties and in a bad way, then there are significant consequences of, of staying in that situation.
1: Could it be argued that while parenting, you know, having children is a very fulfilling and so on, it's very inspiring that possibly where the negatives are coming in or the slight negatives are coming in is that it's also so very challenging and so demanding. And in terms of how we're living in the 21st century, juggling long hours in the workplace, commutes into work, that it's so very demanding that that possibly has created that layer. Of
0: negativity. I'm sure that's right. I'm sure that's right. In fact, there is some evidence that that actually the life satisfaction is related to stress levels. So that will be consistent. So the reason that parents are less Satisfied with life, and it, it isn't a major difference, but it, it is it is one that's noticeable, and people have picked up on, is that actually they are more stressed. There are more demands on their time, and the whole issue of of work life balance itself is is quite interesting because in some of the survey work that we've done. We found that you think that people are take work-life balance as something being really important, but actually it's kind of pretty close to the bottom in, in terms of things that people can achieve. And so this, is, this was kind of quite surprising to us when we, we, we found this.
1: Now Paulie, some very interesting research coming from Germany on the impact of unemployment on young people the research shows that young people, if unemployed, are three times more likely to suffer from mental health issues or mental health events. So clearly, that's a big message to governments all across Europe and across the world, that getting young people active in the workplace is critical to the mental health of the nation.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And it was one of the things that I I found really striking in terms of sort of going around and talking to people in other countries and and, uh, sort of other policy-making bodies. So for a a long time in economics, we've really emphasized the importance of work as the means by which economies and uh, societies would be productive. Well, that's absolutely fine. But decent work and and particularly decent work is also um, a really important mechanism by which Households can become included, and, and increasingly, all these international bodies are emphasizing not just growth but they want socially inclusive growth. And as you say, the, the kind of personal impacts of unemployment are particularly dramatic for younger people. I mean, you know, they, they can be quite bad at the other end of the age spectrum where, you know, if people are forced to retire when they don't need to and they're still fit and active and they need things to do. But the findings are particularly strong for, for younger people. And it suggests really that, you know, creating employment, creating decent work, enabling people to find, you know, good jobs should be perhaps the most important thing that we value or that um, we take into account when we're thinking about how to design and run economies.
1: What about old age and autonomy? Because we're clearly an ageing society and within all of that, how some elderly people are being, I suppose, controlled or manipulated by their children or grandchildren or relatives to make decisions about treatment options they could be facing or whether they go into a retirement home or not or whether to sell their house or not. Lots of different things. So how important is that? in elderly people's overall well-being having the autonomy to make decisions whether it's financial health or otherwise
0: Oh, I think that's incredibly important. I mean, if you think about it, we might be still retiring sort of in our mid-60s in a lot of Western European countries. Well, life expectancy now for men and women is is probably at least 80 in those countries. So you've got 15 years of life when you're not active in the labor market. And so that's a large chunk of your life expectancy. So, you know, why should we not have good quality of life at, at that period?
1: Paul, do you think having good quality friendships and being staying connected with friends can in some way act as a buffer to possibly not a stimulating or rewarding family relationships or spousal relationships?
0: Do you think that's possible
1: or is that diluted?
0: Well, I think think friendships are slightly underestimated. Whether they can protect you from, you know, serious family disruptions is, is another matter. The evidence seems to suggest possibly really, really strong threats and and challenges, you know, friends don't take you very far. But having, you know, a small number of good friends is really important. And and there's also some evidence that actually, you know, as you move around, of course, your, your friendships groups change. But people who do quite well are those who can pick up and develop new friendships in new contexts and places that they go to. So I think it's I think this is an example of, of just how when we look at things like life expectancy, all of these kind of social relations come out as being much more important than we might have thought if we'd just been looking at household and private income and money as our measures of of well-being.
1: Well, it's clear, Paul, from the book that money does not necessarily make you happier, but it certainly makes some aspects of life easier. Like, for example, if we look at access to healthcare, because if you're on a reasonably good salary, you can afford private healthcare and as such have access to the best possible health treatments. And if you don't have of that well it's a huge stressor in your life.
0: Yeah no absolutely of course and health is a very good example where where resources do matter I, I'm, I'm quite sure of that but you know there are systems where those health resources can effectively be provided to all intents and purposes for, for the most part by the state and I mean we, in the UK we have the national health service which for all the criticisms it gets provide quite an egalitarian service.
1: Do you think that leaders, government leaders politicians, policy makers are actually reading the likes of your book and are looking at what the research trends are telling us about society and maybe making more informed and enlightened decisions on how to build fairer more sustainable societies. Do you think they actually care and actually put in the work to actually inform themselves of the decisions they're making which ultimately are impacting on our all our
0: happiness levels? Yes, well um, actually I think this is one of the the really interesting and exciting things about this sort of area of research at the moment. There's been a lot of interest from international bodies, governments, over the past 10 to 15 years, I'd say. And, you know, I think, I think the thing is that a lot of uh, increasing number of politicians, they realize intuitively that if you address people's well-being, and you do so effectively, the more likely to vote you back into power. It's as simple as that. And, and there's some kind of quite interesting uh, evidence from researchers in Warwick University that show that uh, when people are unhappy, they don't vote for the incumbent parties. Regardless, uh, cur- this is a slightly curious aspect of the finding, that actually this is regardless of, of their source of unhappiness. So I think it's, it is coming onto the agenda for a perfectly good reasons. I know of some academics who say, well, actually politicians shouldn't be concerned about our happiness and it's a purely private matter. And if politicians get hold of it, they'll try and manipulate our happiness and, and make us happy so we vote for them. But but actually isn't that what we want? I mean, we want politicians to respond to our well being alongside all the other things that politicians respond to. So I think it's a natural priority and I, I think there's a lot of evidence that they are taking it seriously and um and finding ways to incorporate it into their thinking.
1: Can I ask you about burnout and emotional exhaustion? It's an area that you develop in the book. And I know you talk about surgeons who are under intense and extreme pressure. It seems that they are very vulnerable to burnout. But it seems like how workplaces are designed these days, and certainly when we look at income distribution and gender parity, it seems that we're not helping ourselves. We're not making it better. So what would you advise the government to do in those matters?
0: No, I think that's a really good point. And, uh, I mean, that uh, example that you you quoted, it's a really fascinating study. So you've got a a study of North American surgeons. They're amongst the best paid profession on on the planet. And a third of them are saying they would not recommend the profession to their children. This is just extraordinary. And, in fact, what they did, what the researchers did was they traced back these episodes of, of poor mental health and, and burnout, and they connected it up. To certain kinds of working practices. So, if, for example, surgeons were paid only on the amount of billing that they did for the hospital that month, that just put so much pressure on. The rates rocketed. On the other hand, if they had a sort of much more balanced portfolio of work, so they did a bit of research, they did a bit of teaching, they did a bit of consultancy treatment. So they had a, a portfolio of uh, things that they did. Then actually, the root burnout rates were much reduced. So there are things that Can be done, and there are lessons that we can learn. I think the really big sort of global international point here is that the more and more you talk to people, people are saying, you know, this is a very competitive field and now every field is becoming competitive and uh, you know, I was talking to students the other day and they, they're constantly on LinkedIn and they're saying, you know, I'm looking, I'm always comparing myself now and having to compare myself against all these other people on LinkedIn and you know, there's no way that anyone can have all those skills or attributes and, and so on. So up till now we've, for a long, long time we've taken free trade as the be-all and end-all of global international policy. It has served us well, I would say, probably for at least 200 years it's helped make things that we consume much cheaper and they're produced much more efficiently as a result. However, we've got to a stage where things are becoming so competitive now that, you know, it's possible to move jobs from one country to another very, very quickly with the internet. You know, so that has negative consequences for job security. And, you know, it just turns out that the single most important factor in terms of whether people are satisfied with their job or not is whether it's secure. So there are some sort of quite important connections between personal well-being from work and things like the whole way in which we think about free trade and international trade and so on, that need to be rethought quite fundamentally.
1: But clearly we're not all living in glorious Denmark which seems, the Danes seem to be the happiest in the world <laughs> and there's some serious things at play that we need to deal with. You reference the Global Gender Gap Index which was developed by Harvard economist Ricardo Haussmann and it's very very revealing and not very good if you're living for women if you're living in France. It has, um, it has Britain ranked as 18th out of 135, America 22nd, Germany 13 which is I was a bit shocked by that actually I would expect back to the Germans to do a bit better. France, an astonishing 57. And Ireland was fifth, I think. I don't understand that research because Ireland, as a woman here, it doesn't feel like we're fifth when it comes to um, gender parity certainly when we look at wages.
0: Okay, so that's interesting. I don't know what the particular driver. I think what I would say is that some countries are making virtually no progress at all. And some countries are doing quite well, particularly, you know, the younger end of the age spectrum. So for example, mm. there would be countries uh, where men and women leave university, and they get paid pretty much the same. And that's quite a strong achievement, actually, over the past 20, 30 years. It's true, though, that, you know, when you look higher up the spectrum, that glass ceiling is still very much there. So the top jobs in politics, the top jobs in business, they would still be predominantly taken by or given to to men. And you need to have very kind of carefully thought through and specific policies, and ideally policies that don't create a backlash amongst the other half of the population so that we can support these things. And there is a little bit of work that I think is is worth mentioning here, and this is now recognised both theoretically and in terms of what people are arguing for in terms of policies. And what people are saying is that if you want equality for women in the labour market, then, part of the key to that is creating equality for men in the home and so and the reason for this it's it's actually not a fairness issue but it it's just one of pragmatics and how employment works so if employers think that if they employ a woman and the family has a child, the woman is going to go off and parent for a year then of course they'll they'll favor men that's the way things work, whatever legislation you have in place however if you know if it's open for men and women to, you know, share the parenting, then actually there's no reason why an employer should take such a a view. The employer can say, well, actually, a man or a woman could go off, so I might as well treat them equally and fairly. So I think there are ways of thinking through how you can design a policy that could work. And we are beginning to see these sort of Uh, having having some sort of impact but still for sure there's there is a long way to go
1: but it would also suggest paul that women have to work a lot harder to achieve the same monetary rewards and recognition than their male counterparts because clearly if you're living in the likes of france you have to work fairly bloody hard
0: it's true. And the evidence is it gets truer, what you've just said, gets truer as you progress up the labour market. So that's the situation as it is now. The The interesting thing is that a lot of countries now espouse, at least in law, equality of opportunity uh, and equality of pay. So the question is, you know, there's, so it's not a question of, of principle in a lot of cases anymore. It's just a question of, you know, implementing and achieving that those principles that, that these countries have, have signed up to.
1: Now, Paul, one of the areas in the book that I was expecting to read about and didn't was in relation to the rental market. Because if I go out on the street here today and walk down Grafton Street or anywhere in Dublin and take out a microphone and ask people about their, you know, well-being and happiness and, and so on, the rental market and housing will come into it in some stage. We're living through a housing crisis here in Ireland. We have exorbitant rents. We have very vulnerable tenants. And I'm just wondering, is it something that we should consider when we're looking at overall national happiness and well-being and the health of the nation? And to say that this should be a priority area?
0: I think decent housing is absolutely essential. It's one of the kind of bedrocks of, of good quality of life. And and it's not just the house, it's also the area that you live in and it's the way in which it enables you to engage with work. Rents can create you know, high levels of stress amongst people if they can't afford them. So I think what we want is to focus not just on the rent. Rents are really important if people can't afford. I mean, the ideal situation, of course, I think is that people are able to, you know, afford a decent place live in themselves through their work, just as they have access to decent work. And that should be a part of the whole thing. We're seeing people moving into cities. And I think this is something that you see certainly in capital cities right around the world. You see rents rocketing. And of course, people are driven to these places because they're places where, where the jobs are. So we've got to be careful and mindful about property and You know, get back to basics and see it as a place to live first and foremost, and maybe as a cattle asset second.
1: Last question, Paul. Do you think things will get better in terms of you have been looking at economics and its relationship to sociology and psychology and trends and how we're developing and improving and evolving as societies? Do you think things are getting better, and have we reason to be hopeful that they will?
0: It's a really good. And, and tricky question, that. I mean, I think if you, if you ask somebody whether they think things are, are getting better, chances are they'll say no. But on the other hand, if you look at the grand sweep of history, actually things have, have improved enormously. So it's a difficult one to, to balance. I would say that in terms of the, the kind of institutional expectations, the sort of importance that people attach to things like fairness and autonomy, the seriousness with which other people's well-being welfare is taken in society now i think these are all really Positive things. Having said that, I think some of the some of the structures and some of the activities, some of the changes that we see, you you know, these are raising questions that we've yet to really address. I think so. For example, you know, if, if you look at all this online business, so kind of the Amazons and the Googles and the Ebays, there's nearly only one bookseller, nearly only one search engine, nearly only one auction site, and there's been a big as i'm sure a lot of your listeners will be aware there's been a lot of controversy about about sort of where the tax gets paid and and all of that so some of these technological changes are generating quite serious questions about what kinds of work and jobs we're going to have and where those jobs are going to be that we we really haven't addressed as yet but you know if one looks as i say if one looks back at history we see, you know, really dramatic improvements on an almost daily basis in terms of things like health, education, incomes are sort of at least not falling and uh, in many places still continuing to rise. So I think there are lots of reasons to be optimistic about the future, but I don't think it'll happen without us thinking about it. You know, there are certain collective issues that we can't leave to the market and we have to think about it ourselves.
1: And that was economist Paul Anand. Happiness Explained, what human flourishing is and what we can do to promote it is published by Oxford University Press and retails for just under 16 euros in hardback. Very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. No man ever expressed himself more in his letters than Charles Dickens. So said Dickens' eldest daughter Mamie in 1880. In the selected letters of Charles Dickens, academic author and education activist Dr Jenny Hartley writes... The man could write eloquent letters of consolation to bereaved friends noted his difficulty in expressing himself face to face. Writing reflectively about himself did not come easily. There are the letters of the social worker in charge of every detail, the sociable man who preferred not to dine alone, if possible, the loyal friend and the committed, if sometimes infuriated, family man. More than all these, What these letters revive for us is the sheer energy of being Dickens. So what was it like to be Charles Dickens and why was letter writing such an integral part of his writing life?
2: Hello, my name's Jenny Hartley and I've been involved in editing the selected letters of Charles Dickens, which has just come out in paperback. And so here's a really, really nice one to start with. It's to Daniel MacLeese who was an Irishman. He was born in Cork. And it gives you a wonderful idea of, of, of Dickens's writing life from 1840. He's young. He says, My dear Mac, I've been writing all day and mean to take a great London back slums kind of a walk tonight, seeking adventures in knight-errant style. Will you come with me? And as a preparation... Will you dine with us at a quarter before five? Leg of mutton, stuffed with oysters. Reply, yes, always and ever, Charles Dickens. I mean, what a great letter to get.
1: Jenny, can mm. I ask you, would it be fair to describe Dickens as a compulsive letter writer? I think somewhere in your introductions, you describe his compulsive
2: restlessness. Mm. Mm. He definitely was a compulsive letter writer. I mean, he didn't have to write all the letters he did. Obviously, just really enjoyed it, especially to his friends. But he wrote to all his readers who wrote in, you know, and he always liked to write back quickly. So he, no, he definitely had that compulsion, but he enjoyed it. I mean, it, you know, it was something he really, really enjoyed. And of course, he was very good at it. It. And he, he always took pleasure in writing, I think. He never says it's a chore.
1: Now, you start the selected letters of Charles Dickens on a hugely fascinating note. You write, had it been up to Dickens, the section of this letters would not have appeared. <laughs> he was a great destroyer of letters, especially towards the end of his life. I suppose mm. that was very understandable after his marital breakup.
2: Mm, Yes. And after his breakup, he had this massive bonfire, destroyed everything, all the letters that were written to him. And they all went up. And some people think it was the most expensive bonfire in English literature. Of course, you can't burn the letters that you send to other people. And because he was famous so early people always kept or most, you know a lot of people kept letters that he'd sent to them and of course he got increasingly secretive as he got older but on the other hand you see he did write a lot of letters to Forster his friend John Forster and he knew that Forster was going to be his biographer because he sort of appointed him really Uh, and he never said to Forster don't use my letters so maybe he was sort of having it both ways as well.
1: Yeah, I didn't know much about Forrester until I went through the letters and over a few evenings Mm. just charting their Mm. friendship. Mm. Mm. They had a friendship, they had a professional relationship. Mm. He was Mm. his literary sounding board, trusted confidant they had
2: a remarkable friendship. Oh, absolutely. And Forster says this thing after Dickens died about, you know, the light has gone out of my life. There's nothing left. It's very, very touching. I think the the friendship did sort of wane in later years, partly maybe because Forster married and I think, you know, things changed. But um, no, they were very close and he used Forster as a sort of sounding board. He used to send him manuscripts so that Forster would look through them and, and sort of help read the proofs and so on. So he was tremendously important. He had close relationships actually with other literary figures as well like like Thackeray, and he also I mean it's very funny he obviously could lose his temper Dickens describes him once at the dinner table looking like an exploding salmon so <laughs> he obviously could, could go over the top sometimes yeah. And he wrote a lot to
1: Elizabeth Gaskell and also to George Eliot but one of the correspondences I was very interested in was with Scottish philosopher and writer Thomas Carlyle. He did a lot of soundboarding with him also I think Hard Times, Tales of Two Cities. Mm. He really valued his opinions. Mm. How he his criticisms of his writing. Mm. They had an amazing intellectual relationship, didn't they?
2: Yes, I think uh, Carlyle was something of a mentor to him. He was an older man. He had this sort of philosophical, you know, take on life and, and so on, and analysis of what was fundamentally wrong with the age. You know that we've become mechanical in head and in heart. You know that this is the very material age, and of course Dickens agreed with him. And Carlyle had done his huge history of the French Revolution which Dickens said he'd read, I don't know, 39 times or something, and used uh, very much when he was writing A Tale of Two Cities. So when he writes to Carlyle, it's very much hoping for Carlyle's approval. He also got on very well with Jane Carlyle, Carlyle's wife, who was a very intelligent and, and lively woman. So there is this sense of here's a couple both of whose judgment I, I really respect, yes.
1: And I remember one of the letters that I read was actually when he was sending his condolences. wasn't that to Carlisle when she died, wasn't mm, it? Yes, and yes, he's, he's yes. incredibly supportive, mm, incredibly warm, yes. and it was, it's a really beautiful letter, isn't yes. it?
2: Yes, yes. He, no, he, he did, and of course it, it, you get this feeling, this sense of the circle in London and visiting each other and a wonderful description of a Christmas party. Dickens is a magician and, you know, Jane Carlisle just thought it was, you know, she, it was the best evening of her life, you can imagine. And they had a really good social time, as well as, you know, immersing themselves in each other's work. And for Dickens, with Carlisle, it was his outlook, you know, that feeling very much that Carlisle had analysed what was wrong with the times, the signs of the times, as he called it. Yes.
1: Now, Jenny, you describe him as a man with abundance of wit and vitality, a writer who had ten times the energy of ordinary (laughs) mortals. Mm. And in the selected letters of Charles Dickens, we get Charles Dickens as a novelist, a journalist. journalist, a magazine editor, a social campaigner and a father. And I was humbled by some of his letters to his children. Now, Mm. there's some very tricky ones to his brothers. But it (laughs) seems that the New Testament had a profound effect on his life and mm. his, his understandings of the world and offered him great comfort. And when one of his sons goes to Australia, I think at the age of 16, mm. he he talks about the truth and the spirit of the New Testament. Mm. And I was really, really taken by that. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that now in the letters.
2: Mm. Yes, he, he wrote a sort of uh, child's life of our Lord for his children, which was later published. He was a very straightforward, if you might say, sort of Christian believer and really very much in the spirit of the New Testament. And, and And so on, and, and helping others and so forth, and when his children left he he could be really sort of quite nasty about his sons in a way, he kept saying how limp and feeble they were, but he he would send them off, and when he sent them off, he would always send them with a Bible and a prayer you know, and say your prayers every night in the, as I do, and that kind of thing, so very much believing in Christianity as a great prop you know and a support in life and and uh, I think this sometimes gets forgotten. we think of him as a great revolutionary sort of. Spirit which he was in some ways and very critical of society. But he certainly had this strong faith throughout his life. And as everybody did in those days, he attended church. But I think it was more than that for him. I think he really did find it a great support.
1: Do you think it's fair to describe him as a conservative radical? Because he talks about the truth and beauty of the Christian religion and says that it's one of the unfailing guides in his life. I'm just wondering
2: about that. Yes, I mean, the thing is, though, he's quite critical of... Clergymen themselves, you know, he can be very rude about uh, when he feels like, you know, they're going on about things and, they, you know, they don't really know what they're talking about. Or, you know, if you think of the characters in his novels, who, who Mr. Chadband or something in, in Bleak House, who he, he sort of t- can be quite negative about. So he isn't by any means sort of wholeheartedly sort of everything the church does is right. He can be quite critical. And yes, I mean, in lots of ways, he's, he, he is a critical person. He is a radical person. But you always feel that he's on the side of the under- the dog. I think that's what you always feel about him and that he's always got a pretty critical idea, sort of eye on, on the institutions, you know, that run the country.
1: And some of the letters really show Dickens as a social worker, not just the man who's a great networker. Now, Mm. you say you wanted to show Dickens' range as a letter writer. And Mm. one of the aspects of that range, I thought rather interesting, was on the death of his daughter, Dora. This was a very unexpected death. And how he writes to Catherine is somewhat peculiar. It's understandable, given the context of the time. But can you talk me through that? Because it's very revealing on his temperament. I might get you to read a little bit of it. Would you Mm. mind, Jenny?
2: Yes, so this is the letter he writes to Catherine in 1851. My dearest Kate, now observe. You must read this letter very slowly and carefully. And I just think that's a really wonderful beginning because you know how we all hurtle through stuff like this. Uh, You must read this letter very slowly and carefully. If you have hurried on thus far without quite understanding, apprehending some bad news, I rely on your turning back and reading again. Little Dora, without being in the least pain, is suddenly stricken ill. She was only eight months at this time. She awoke out of a sleep and was seen in one moment to be very ill. Mind, I will not deceive you. I think her very ill. There is nothing in her appearance but perfect rest. You would suppose her quietly asleep, but I'm sure she is very ill, and I cannot encourage myself with much hope of her recovery. I do not. Why should I say I do to you, my dear? I do not think her recovery at all likely. And so she's, at this point, Catherine's in Melbourne, she's taking the waters, she's having a treatment because she's not well, so she's in a nervous state anyway, so this is a letter to prepare her for Dora's death and I think Catherine would read that and know, actually Dora has died so she's got to this long journey home, you're talking about how Forster was close to her, and of course this is true at this moment, moment, Forster is sent to collect Catherine Dickens stays at home with the other children people sometimes say why didn't he go but actually he's with the other children you know so Forster goes to collect Catherine and Catherine I should think knew you know that Dora had died so I see it as a very sympathetic letter actually that he, he knows that she's going to sort of rush through this letter but no stop take it quietly and just prepare her for what as he says in other letters you know many have suffered this sort of horrible thing and we, we've often thought our time will come you know this was it And I I find that letter actually very moving to read.
1: It struck me he was very emotionally smart. Mm. But I think that Catherine... Pretty much broke down, understandably, uh, on the death of Dora, and mm. Dickens himself found that time in his life incredibly difficult, mm. and also mm. the death of his brother later on.
2: Well, his 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 family, my blood petitioners, he called them. They were always after him for money, and of course, Dora died not at uh, about the same time as his father died. His father had also always sort of been after him for money and stuff, but he was terribly fond of his father, so th- th- this was a, not an easy time for him. And with his brother dying, I mean, again, his his relationship were often very problematic the, the death of his his sister actually I found very touching and he, he he comes back from sitting by her bed he was very fond of his older sister Fanny he comes back by sitting by his bedside and he writes to Forster uh, a long description about you know the state Fanny's in and, and he says, well I, I really don't know why I'm writing this it's really just to be doing something and I think that's that's so much isn't it writing is therapy A lot of people do that well you know when things are, are really bad you you, you just sort of maybe think that writing it will, will help you a bit And for him, it was obviously that letter to Forster, which did.
1: Do you think, Jenny, that these letters are in some way the nearest we'll get to Dickens'
2: autobiography? Mm-hmm. They must be, mustn't they? Because he never wrote. Well, he wrote an autobiographical fragment about his early years, which he, as you were saying about Forster, he wrote it for Forster alone, knowing that Forster would later put in his biography. Um, so that's the secrets of his his childhood. We do know, but apart from that, he didn't. He didn't keep a journal. He tried once and said how sad it was ticking off the days. You know, so he he, he never kept a long journal, and he wasn't. Really given to a lot of introspection. He didn't write long letters about what I'm feeling, you know, but we do get glimpses Mm -hmm. of what it was like to write, you know, the books that he was writing and, 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 uh, you know, moments of when they're going well or or when it's all boiling, as he says. So you get that feeling of a life on the move, Mm. that feeling of all amazing things, that that, that, you know, the sort of 48 hours in his day kind of thing, that you do get that sense tremendously in the letters, yeah.
1: Now, one of the things that really jumps out is some of the contradictory aspects of his personality (laughs) and you say, these glimpses are all the more valuable because of Dickens' reticence in life. Mm. The man could write eloquent letters of consolation to bereaved friends, but noted his difficulty in expressing himself face to face.
2: Mm. And, and, and in a way, it's not uncommon, is it? But certainly, and there's one account he gives of going to see a very good friend and her husband's died and, and he doesn't know what to say. And he describes rather ruefully, I think, his inability to, to say anything and they both go and look out of the window. you know. And I, I think that he knew that, that he had this uh, reticence at times. And I suppose sometimes he's quite suspicious of people who are too ready to sort of, you know, let it all out, as you might say. And he does say, he blames it all on his early love affair with this woman, Maria Biednall. And he's, he's, when he meets up with her later in life, he writes these wonderful letters to her. I mean, it looks as though he's going to sort of rekindle the romance and he's behaving really a bit odd. And he says to her, this early love affair has been the cause of me being quite reticent. I don't express myself emotionally, except with my children when they're very young.
1: One other thing is that struck me as... Mm very interesting really is uh, the fact that of the 14,000 letters that you have <laughs> there is no letters to Ellen Ternan that was his mistress she met him when was she performing one yes. of his plays I yes. know she was 18 and yes. he was 45 yes. Yes. and it was <laughs> yes. it was very controversial at the time and he tried to keep their relationship as private as mm. he could what do you think those letters that we don't have would have revealed
2: <laughs> or can we say anything <laughs> I don't think we can one of the few things we had there's a coded telegram which decoded, and wonderful critical work has been done with it, to decode it. And it says, don't, don't come to America when he was on his reading tour, because I suppose he thought the exposure would, you know, it wouldn't work. So, what those letters, who knows? What you can get these glimpses of a relationship, which isn't, I mean, I always thought it was a terribly secret from the rest of the family, but you can see in the letters he's saying to Georgina, his sister in law, tell N, you know, we'll meet on Monday or something. So, you know, so N, presumably Nelly, was to some extent part of a circle at Gad's Hill she would have been there at his country house obviously she wouldn't you know that was after Catherine had been so cruelly kicked out but as to what they look like i mean i you know wouldn't it be wonderful if <laughs> if they turn up it's very unlikely because i imagine i mean she was such a reinventor of herself as you can read in, you know, Claire Tomlin's wonderful book, you know, taking ten years off her age and so on. And I would imagine that reinventing yourself would involve burning those letters, wouldn't you? You know, that side of my life finished now.
1: Now that you mention Claire Tomlin, you mm. have a very impressive and helpful range in your selected bibliography at the end. Mm. And I think you also thank the great Michael Slater <laughs> who I imagine was incredibly helpful. Yes. And you've mentioned Peter Aykroyd and some of his other mm. Mm. high-profile biographers. Can I ask you a tricky question? I don't have to answer (laughs) it. Well, no, no. But when when we look at some of his great books, Little Mm. Dorrit, Hard Times, David Mm. Copperfield, Mm. Great Expectations, does all art or great art have to be campaigning or should it be? Because Mm. if we look at the output of Dickens, Mm. all his books have a social campaigning remit to them. Where do you stand in all of that?
2: Well, I think it's part of what he does but it's only part of it I mean lots of people can write campaigning novels and in the 19th century they certainly did but we don't read those ones anymore you know that, that if that's all they're doing then it's going to die and it's going to die with the issue that's been campaigned about and so on and it, it's going to have no real life so what those novels are to me is first and foremost they are novels they are wonderful works of art and that's why we read them for the life in them the vitality the characters particularly the characters isn't it and really the issues that they raise tend to come along as part of what those characters' lives are about. So, in a way, to see, see him as campaigners, yes, but that's only part of it. I mean, he, as I say, he, he himself was very conscious of his role standing up for, you know, working men and women and so on, and children and all those who couldn't stand up for themselves. But he was also, first and foremost, a, a brilliant novelist, wasn't he?
1: And that was Dr Jenny Hartley from Roehampton University in the UK. The selected letters of Charles Dickens is published by Oxford University Press and retails for in and around 26 euros in hardback. Now I have to say, hand and heart, these letters are only fantastic. They're warm, humane and wonderfully intimate. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. All that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Burnock, who helped out with this week's programme, and the lovely Marianne Kennedy on sound. We've been Talking Books. I'd like to end tonight's broadcast with some stirring words from the great Charles Dickens, from his novel David Copperfield, published in 1850. Procrastination is the thief of time. Good night.